the tree of life. This morning, I tried to give some reasons why uh, I believe that the function of the tree was to be a sign signifying something other than treeness. And the reason why I believed that the sacramental view of the tree, that it was a sign signifying something else, a quality of life, um, reason why I think that's the best view, or there are several reasons why I think that's the best view, primarily because of the way the Bible picks up on the language. During lunch, uh, talking with various folks, um, I realized some people made a connection between the scripture reading from John 6 and the tree of life. An interesting connection. I think it's there. The agent through whom a quality of life better than Adam's created state comes is none other than the incarnate Son of God, the bread who came down from heaven. This fruition that comes from him is ultimately from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it comes to us through his flesh. And so we looked at the tree of life from Genesis 2, hinted at something odd in Genesis 3 about it, and then went to Revelation 2 and Revelation 22, which pick up tree of life language again, in the midst of language, and um, and then I closed the sermon this morning saying, but there's another reason why I don't hold the pharmaceutical or the medicinal view of the tree of life, and that is Psalm 1. So I want to look at Psalm 1. I want to read the psalm first and then make several notations, observations to help frame our minds for the Lord's Supper. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that's Psalm 1. Let's make some observations. First of all, the psalmist is speaking about the blessed man. That's pretty obvious. Not male necessarily, but I think in one sense, ultimately, yes, the male, Christ Jesus, the man. Note secondly that this blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You ever heard that language before? You have, if you've read the Old Testament. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then 
you will make your way prosper and then you will have success. So there's at least one echo from another passage in the Old Testament. Joshua is echoed here. So the psalmist is going back in, we could call it redemptive history, and connecting this blessed man with at least the words of what Joshua said. Notice third, the result of the blessed man's delight and meditation. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So that comes as a result of his delight and meditation, and the assumption is obedience to the law of God. Note fourth, this sounds strangely familiar, given the passages we looked at earlier today. For example, and on the side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. That's Revelation 22, 2. Sounds familiar, right? What was written first? The psalm was written before Revelation. So Revelation is probably echoing the psalm a little. But this kind of language is not first revealed to us either in Revelation 22 or even in Psalm 1. When I read the psalm, did you hear some previous biblical truths. Did you, did you hear the garden? You should have. If you didn't, I'm telling you, go back and read it and listen, listen harder. Turn up your things if you have to, guys. This is Edenic language connected to this blessed man who ultimately does this perfectly. Now, I'm going to quote from a book. I referenced it today. Andrew Bonar is the author. He's a 19th century Scottish uh, Presbyterian. Horatius Bonar is his brother. I think both of them have hymns in our hymnal. But in this book, he makes some astonishing claims, and I think he's right. He says, perhaps the comparison to the tree and the streams should carry us back to Eden and suggest the state of man holy and happy there. I think we can take the word perhaps out there. No, that's what's going on. I think he's right. But another observation, fifth, is a question. Who is the psalmist talking about? Is it you? In one sense, I think we can say, well, it's any true believer. Um, What, yeah, what true believer wants to say, no, I don't want to delight in the law of the Lord. I don't want to even want to try because I know I can't do it. No, we, we, we attempt it, okay? It's good. It's good that we do that. But I think there's something else happening here. Here's Mr. Bonar again. Um, He says, we have noticed that our Lord seems to quote one of the expressions of this psalm. So he'd already made a comment. He claims that during the Lord's ministry on the earth, he echoes Psalm 1 sometimes. Here it is, Matthew 7, 23. 
Well, verse 6 in, in Psalm 1 says this. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Matthew seven twenty three. I never knew you. So he's saying, oh, the Lord Jesus read the Psalms well enough that he's using the language of Psalm 1. Luke 13, 27. I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Matthew 25, 12. I do not know you. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He doesn't know the wicked in the sense of uh, they don't have a saving relationship with them. So he says, we have noticed that our Lord seems to quote one of the expressions of this psalm. And let us see how we must suppose it. We may suppose it all read by him in the days of his flesh. See what he's doing there? He's saying, oh, you know what? There's indications in the Lord's earthly ministry in the gospel accounts that he referenced Psalm 1. And now he's saying, let us suppose we're witnessing him reading the psalm. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus read the psalms. Now he says, we know he read it. His delight was in the law of the Lord. And often has he quoted the book of Psalms. That's all true. As he read, it would be natural to his human soul to appropriate the blessedness pronounced on the godly, for he knew and felt himself to be indeed the godly who had not walked in the counsels of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scornful. He felt himself able to say at all times, Thy law is written within my heart. Was he not the true tree? <laughs> Was he not the true tree? Can we help thinking on him as alone realizing the description in this psalm? The members of his mystical body, believers, in their measure, aim at this holy walk, but it is only in him that they see it perfectly exemplified. His leaf never withered. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He yielded his fruit in its season, obeying his mother Mary, and being found about his father's business, going up to the feast when his hour was come, and suffering when the time appointed came, everything in season, and all he did prospered. He finished the work given him to do, and because of his completed work, therefore, God hath highly exalted him. We who are his members seek to realize all this in our measure. We seek that everything in us should be to the glory of God, heart, words, actions, all that may adorn the gospel, as well as all that is directly holy. Having the imputed righteousness of this Savior, we earnestly long to have his holiness imparted as well. Though conscious that he alone comes up to the picture drawn here so beautifully in either view, we may ascribe as the title of this psalm the blessed path of the righteous one, both righteous and one, capitalized. He does this toward the end of each psalm. Remember, we read this years ago. 
Um, so he, he does an exposition. He shows you how it shows Christ. He shows you how the people of Christ are in there and in the other things that are in there. And then he re- gives you a title for the song, the psalm. This one, the blessed path of Jesus is basically the righteous one. Delighting in the law of God, loving God's law perfectly, personally, perpetually on behalf of others. Uh, unlike Adam, who had the law written on his heart, should have loved God and his neighbor, didn't, got duped by the devil. So I hope that's encouraging to you. I think he's right to do that. It's another reason why I think that the, uh, the tree of life is, Christ is the true tree, that to which ultimately the tree uh, pointed to. The agent through whom eternal life comes to sinners is the incarnate Son of God. He's our Savior, and we need him way more than we realize. A sixth observation on the psalm to help us understand its relationship to our Lord and, I think, the garden, is that the psalm picks up Edenic themes and sees them realized in a righteous man fully and perfectly obeying the law of God. The psalm picks up Edenic themes. Just read it. You can see them. And it sees them, these themes in Eden, and the potential that was in Eden, realized in a righteous man fully and perfectly obeying the law of God. Unlike the first Adam, who walked in the counsel of the wicked, the last Adam committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he comes into the world, the incarnate Son of God says, quoting Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book, or in the scroll of the book, or in the head of the book, or in the beginning of the book, of God, It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Paul, in Hebrews chapter 10, puts those words on the lips of our Lord during his incarnate state. And what he's saying there, uh, what he's saying there is found in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, I believe. And even in Psalm 40, as David's writing, you could tell David's not writing about himself. And he's writing about this, it's, it's written about this individual, the individual that's actually speaking in the psalm that David wrote, because David's putting the words of somebody else down on paper, and that's what we read, says, whoever this individual says is, he says, at the beginning of the Bible, for our sake, it's written about me to, to do the will of God. And what is, what is the will of God? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus do when he came on the earth? He, 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 he assumed human nature, okay? So uh, he had original righteousness because he wasn't a sinner. He engaged with the text of Scripture and nature outside of himself, in a way that Adam 
could have done at the beginning, failed to continue to do. Jesus never draw, drew sinful conclusions from his observations, uh, never drew sinful conclusions from his reading of the text of Scripture. Okay, he developed and matured starting in the womb, but by the time his earthly ministry come, comes, he's a 30 or so year old man. And he's engaging the world without sinning. He is upholding the law of God. He's, his original righteousness is, is within him. And he's doing stuff we can't do personally, perpetually, precisely, perfectly obeying the natural law and any other positive laws he was supposed to obey. Like he went to the temple. Do you think Jesus offered sacrifices for his sins? Probably not, right? No, but he did other things that were in obedience to positive laws. But he never violated the law. Never, not once. So it, it was God's will, first of all, for Adam the first to obey God's law perfectly on behalf of others as well. But he didn't. You know, the occasion for the judgment of God upon him and his wife was the taking of the fruit. But there was drastic, catastrophic stuff that had already happened before they took the fruit, right? Remember, Eve's apparently either by herself, apart from her husband, or Adam's sitting on the sideline while this weird thing comes and talks to him. And they gave ear to this weird thing, the serpent's tool, the snake. She gave ear to it, and as we'll see next week, he's lying about, about the threat that God gave. He doesn't rehearse it exactly like we have it in Genesis 2. That's not the form of the threat that Adam received from God. That is, that which the serpent ends up telling Eve. Uh, uh, telling Eve, God, You take it. God knows you're going to become like him. You're going to be like divinities. That's, that's, that's not what it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the devil's lying from... You know, the devil tried to trip up, not only did he trip up the first Adam, he tried to trip up the last Adam too, right? Remember that? Okay, so Jesus, after his baptism, is, dro is driven, out by, uh, driven out into the wilderness. No. It is, it is where we live, outside of Eden. The devil beat the first Adam in the garden. The last Adam beats the devil on the devil's turf, God of this world. There's, a, there's another one of those things, redemptive reversals. You know, I, I, I stated one earlier today. The first creation starts huge, and then the last day of creation is this micro thing called man. And then the last creation starts small with a micro, the Son of God incarnate, raised from the dead, and then ends up huge. This is another one of those where the devil beats the first Adam in the garden and the last Adam beats the devil in the wilderness. And he tempts him. And you remember Jesus beats him with 
with the word of God, with the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Not merely to set a good example for us. Is it a good example when the Lord Jesus, according to his human nature, memorizes scripture and is able to duel with the devil and win? Yes, it's a great, marvelous example, but that's not the primary reason it's in the Bible. The primary reason is not that we go, wow, what a good example. I'm a terrible Christian. I don't memorize the Bible enough. The primary reason is that we go, That is God's warrior that he promised in the Old Testament. He's the hero of redemption, not merely the exemplar, but a savior who's beating God's enemy and God's people's enemy on his own turf. That's that's what makes the incarnation even more mysterious in one sense. Could God just have said, eh, I don't like how this turned out. Well, yeah. But he doesn't do that. He assumes our flesh. Mystery upon mystery. So it was God's will for Adam to obey God's law. He didn't. But praise God, the last Adam does for us and for our eternal life. First signified by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But look at this Romans 5 text. I think it's Romans 5. I know it's Romans 5. I just forget what verse it is. 19? 17. 17. So this is Romans 5. Remember, start start at verse 12. We're doing the Adam, Christ, antitheses, parallels, sameness, and then differentness. In verse 17, we read this, read this, forth by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Okay, grace ends up coming to us because of some sort of righteousness. Is, this, is he talking about your righteousness? No. Through Righteousness, now watch this, to eternal life. So this righteousness, this living according to the law of God, leads to eternal life. Where do we get that? If it's that, there's a righteousness that leads to eternal life. I want it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here we have... Paul basically doing Edenic theology in one sense, but he acknowledges the first Adam failed, and what the first Adam failed to do, the last Adam does. He obeys God. He earns a reward. He merits eternal life through his obedience. And then God rewards rewards him with the glorious resurrection, and we get all the benefits of the last Adam through the last Adam, through 
our Jesus Christ, our Lord. So is salvation based on works? The answer is, you know, Sisbrol does this, I think. Yes, just not our works. Whose work? The doing, the dying, and the rising of the last Adam for us and for our salvation. So those are the reasons why I think the tree of life functioned as a sign signifying something better than Adam's created state. Now, we, there's a weird text. It comes in Genesis 3. You heard it. I read it this morning. Where it seems like God's taking the pharmaceutical view of both the trees, and that's why he, that's why he puts the cherubim to guard the, to guard the garden so that they don't come back in there and eat from those trees. It looks like that's what's happening, right? I'm going to say, no, that's not what's happening. Something else is happening, but I can't tell you because that's next week's sermon. I might tell you privately, but I won't tell everybody. That way you have to come, eat, eat our food, hear me preach. Um, so may the Lord help us. I, I hope that was uh, helpful. It's been helpful for me to think through these things and kind of crystallize some of my thinking, and anything that's uh, wrong, may the Lord strike it from our memories, but everything that's right may burn it into our hearts so that we're more grateful and thankful for the grace he's given us, so it changes the way we live, that we live a more thankful, obedient life. Not trying to merit or earn, but but trying to say thank you. Uh, Guilt, grace, gratitude. We recognize our guilt, we go to Christ. What do we get from Christ? Grace. What do I do once I get grace? I'm thankful. I pray. I obey. I go to church. I repent. Things like that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the true tree. As the old Scotsman said, our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be more grateful and thankful in our lives. We want to be more obedient. We want to be more Uh, consciously dependent upon you in prayer. Please forgive us for not being as we ought, but thank you that even uh, prayer was sanctified by our Savior when he was on the earth. He was the perfect prayer. He was the perfect everything. He was the blessed man, the righteous man, who always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself who has a perfect record in relation to the law of God. His original righteousness was impeccable, was upheld, and earned for us a quality of life we could never earn for ourselves, eternal life. We are dependent upon him and him alone. Without him, we can do nothing, nothing good, that is. With him, glory is ours, and grace, um, grace now, and help in our time of need. And now we are going to shift our our thoughts to the supper of our Lord, instituted by him on the night in which he was betrayed. Taking bread, taking the cup, uh, um, consecrating both, distributing and eating with his disciples. This institution came from our Lord. It is for our Lord's people believers in him, baptized in him, uh, joined to his church, uh, not living in sin, not under discipline. So bless as we 
who aren't worthy for the supper, but are not unworthy of the supper. Please help us as we come, and uh, may we feast on the tree of life and gain uh, nutritious benefits for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.